This is an epic quest across an ancient, magical kingdom. As Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by her otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Chapter 10 Uma Uma stumbled into the bookshelves, knocking Inga's scrolls to the floor. She bent hurriedly to pick them up, then prized along beneath the heavy boards until she found the catch grooved deep into the dusty wood. She'd never even guessed it was there, but now, looking down, she could see the crescent drawn in the dust from when Inga opened it to hide the keep bag for her. The mark would be a telltale sign for the soldiers. Uma bent, smudging it with her cloak hurriedly, blood pounding in her ears. It took all her strength to budge the shelf aside, heavy as it was with Inga's scrolls and hide-bound books. She could hear the soldiers coming, shouting and whooping. They were coming, my gods, they were coming. They were at the door. The shelf finally lurched open, just enough to reveal the dark pit beneath it, and cool air snaked up around Uma's ankles. She leapt down into the darkness, almost in the same movement reaching up to crank as hard as she could on the heavy wooden lever overhead. The shelves groaned closed. She barred them shut with a peg beside the lever on a rope, sweat rivering down her arms and neck like dozens of tiny, awful worms crawling all over her and she wiped at herself, suddenly terrified all over again, just as the soldiers thundered in. The sound shook her to the bones. Through the dusty, honeycombed light of the scrolls, Uma watched the soldiers' huge hide boots stomp across the room. One of them stepped on Inga's bare feet, jackknifing her body face down onto the floor. Blood dog, the soldier said, and there was laughter. The damp thud of Inga's body reverberated through Uma like a second death. Her stomach lurched, sour with what she could not do. She covered her mouth, biting herself so not to scream. Live, Inga had told her. You must live. And she promised. Her life was not her own any longer. It belonged to Ulali. Attention, a soldier said. The hide boots briskly lined up against the wall on either side of the library, and the cloak that swept in next was richly dyed, so black it drank away all the light in the room. Your Majesty, the soldier said, bowing low. Flooding with icy hatred, Uma crouched to see the man's face. But the prince was young, hardly older than she was, and he seemed younger still, flanked as he was by the huge grizzled soldiers all around him. He was surprisingly slight, with long, narrow eyes like a catling's. His mahogany face was all angles, high cheekbones, a narrow chin. Even his skin looked hard, like oiled wood, smooth and hairless, but for his glossy black mustache and slight, delicate goatee. The dark sheen of his hair made Uma think of blood moths, as they pressed to the scarves of the dead. Mothman, 
she thought. The prince's posture commanded all the other figures in the room like gravity itself. He raised a hand for silence, closed his eyes, and tipped his head back, smiling. <sighs> Have you ever smelled anything so sweet, my people? No, sovereign. The soldier who spoke now was middle-aged, with a long, pinched nose and proud, deeply set eyes that were angled like the prince's own. The cleanest, sweetest air in the world. And now it is Yang. Still at attention, the woman smiled and kicked Inga's body over on the floor. She dug her boot into the back of Inga's neck, leaned forward dramatically, peering down. She scoffed. Not much to see. I thought Wutar fangs were supposed to be as long as hands. The mothman dismissed this with a wave of his own slender, manicured hand. Children's tales. The Wutar have grown weaker for years. They were hardly a worthy foe. Uma was memorizing his face. She would make herself see his face all day and all night until she avenged her people and bled and shamed his body as he'd bled her beloved Ulali. She would never let herself mourn until he lay dead in a thousand humiliated pieces. But an awful devouring doubt began creeping through her. She was only a girl and a failure at that. Her last words to Inga were a promise she could never keep. Shame and fury roared in her ears as a burst of laughter came to them from the alley outside, and with it, the reptilian hiss of swinging torches. Another black cloak swept into the room, carrying a large scroll of tanned skin, covered all over with small, precise markings. Briskly hemmed by officers who followed her, the new cloak flung the scroll open across the table for the Mothman Prince's review. We're secure at the port, my sovereign, she said proudly. Anything of interest, General Powell? The general shrugged. A few of the ships sank before they burned all the way to the cinders. We're diving up what we can, but there's not much left, sir. Spices, fabric. But these waters... You should see the fish we're catching. We'll feast tonight. The land is the prize, really. Not this ruin. She pinned the scroll open with one hand, gesturing with the other indifferently towards the library around them, as if the structure were not worth any more of her attention than that. The prince studied the scroll. Could we not have commandeered at least several of the ships? General Powell bowed. I'm asking you, General he said. Were my fighters really so frightened of... He kicked Inga's body. These frail beasts? Uma clung to the wall below them, desperately trying not to make a sound. She had to live. But her feet began to slip against the shallow foothold she'd made with her sandals. It seems they saw us coming after all, Sovereign, General Pow said. They set themselves alight. The prince shook his head. Right. Devi, you'll be here, he said, gesturing one of the other soldiers forward to study the map with him. Ensure it is secure. And Rothwell? The soil in Uma's hands gave way, and she slid just as the torch flared into General Pow's hand. And the woman moved with it down the row of soldiers, 
lighting their torches. The sound lit and flared like a series of doors rushing open, and the prince nodded. Burn it all. I have spoken. He swept out, leaving General Pow turning to the boy soldier, Rothwau. As he said, and she squatted, crouching over Inga's body, sawing into the dead woman's face with an instrument Uma could not see. When she came up, the general held Inga's fangs, cupped in her hand. She tugged the soldier's keep bag out atop his cloak and stuffed the bloody fangs into it roughly as Rothwau beamed. The general patted his shoulder. Remember you this proud day, boy. Still beaming, Rothwau saluted her and began to torch the ants' bodies. The others filed out as he strode to the curtains, to the bookshelves, and Inga's words surged in Uma like a screaming heart. You. She snatched the bag from its hook on the wall and ran, smoke sucking down into the tunnel, rushing past her, the hot, strangling, devouring smoke. It was the same that was this moment destroying Ula Lee, everyone she'd ever loved, a dark caress that was choking her, blinding her, prizing inside Uma as she ran to the exit. Must. She slammed into a wall, climbed it blindly, scrabbling out into a prickling mass of woven vines and leaves until finally she was free, thrashing through underbrush into dirt and stones. Yang soldiers would be camped here. Somewhere in the woods nearby, they would see the smoke coming up behind her out of the escape tunnel. They would already be on their way. Live. But Uma could only lie there, staring up, her lungs clawing for breath as the trees hissed down at her. Run, girl, run. Her lungs would never be the same. Uma went on and on, taking in the painful breaths, alive, forcing her lungs to try to fill as the light heliographed above her. Beautiful all down through the green and silver leaves. Oh, the terrible beauty of brightness, of surviving, when everything and everyone you loved was gone, was burning, she'd only ever wanted to be free. Now the final strand of the House of Reaping Suns lay gasping. Her slender body blew as rain on the quarry floor. Suddenly understanding that freedom only meant she was alone in all the world. Chapter 11 Pet Boy The young soldier named Pet Boy studied the sky as it flooded dark with ash. The sun seemed to study him back. Thick, greasy smoke wreathed round it, as if the sun were the enormous eye of Godics themselves, roomy and exhausted and knowing far too much. Pet Boy had grown up along the Wai River, hunting most days. The wildest part of the river were as familiar to him as his own soul. But this place, with its wet air and sparse, forbidding trees, the possibility of a blood-sucking Wutar monster around every bend and bush, it made him shiver with a delicious, unnameable fear. That is to say, he felt alive. As a soldier, for the first time in his life, he had his own identity, 
separate from family and tribe. He could create himself anew, which was the whole point of living, he decided. He felt closer to Godex with just the thought that any change of state was a creative act. This idea had occurred to Pet Boy all on his own. It was the first independent realization he'd ever had. He realized also that he didn't know exactly where the thought came from and that he did not know what his next thought would be. This delighted him no end. Before joining the military, every day was the same, as was his every thought and every meal. But what was holier than the act of creation itself, of new thoughts, ideas, actions, personas, Pet Boy imagined Godex watched him, smiling as he performed one feat after another for them, shifting between his new selves so rapidly that even some of the older soldiers seemed to fear him. As a soldier, Pet Boy could be whomever he decided. Back home, the olders were always forcing him to remain the boy he'd once been. But here, at one night fire, he might tell outrageous stories and make those three times his age laugh so hard on their bread they choked. Then, at another, he might be sullen and steal food. There were no olders to crowd him, singing him straight about the correct and thoughtful boy he once had been. After all, his good behavior was just another mask, too, and it had served him well back at home. But was a person really supposed to never change? No, Pet Boy knew he was on to something, really on to something with his idea. He gazed up at the sky, praying to Goddix for something, a sign, a reason, anything that might warrant his leaving camp. Because he was one of the youngest, his duty was to hang back and tend camp until Ulali fell. His new understanding filled him with a happiness so sharp and wild it was hard to breathe sometimes, hard to swallow, to have to wait here, doing nothing, while the older soldiers had foraged all the treasure they wanted and all the blood-eaters were massacred to death and every glory taken, while here Pet Boy was to sit and wait, poking at the fire. But, his captain said, look lively, Pet Boy. If you see something, you can do something. Like what, Pet Boy said. Uh, you'll know. Keep your head on a swivel, that's all. Now, written up there in the sky was the answer to Pet Boy's prayer, a thin column of smoke tracing up from the trees. Praise Goddix, it must be investigated. He grinned, waving wildly over at the other boy left behind to tend camp. His scrapes, scrapes, look there. We better go check that out, don't you think? Chapter 12, A Harvest of Sons. As Inga's bones collapsed into curls of ash, together with the ash of scrolls she and her people before her shepherded with their lives. Finally, even the shelves gave way, tumbling down into the secret passageway, coughing smoke out into the trees in the quarry outside Ulali. The hole in the floor was visible to any who looked in from the street, but the doorway was all flames, and there was no longer anyone living within the Medina to see it. Soldiers smashed 
household shrines and fish carts and flower beds. They savaged bodies and paintings and the delicate statuary of old man knew, burning everything of Ulali except her irreducible bones. They filled their cloaks with ceremonial knives, swords, robes, spices, and blades. Here and there, a surviving Catlinger lope was found, driven mad by the flames, and these they chased outside the gates into an enclosure for later review. Most would be cooking in the ashes by nightfall and eaten by starlight. The remains of the once great castle cracked downwards, like cooling bread. Chapter 13 Fern Fern slipped quietly from her bunk, scudding silently out into the dawn. She squatted and made water in the bushes well outside the circle of Chiriclo caravans, murmuring to the hobbled lopes so they would not wicker and wake the others. An artist like her mother, Fern loved to be the only one awake, with all the world to herself and the daylight still milky and new upon it. But even as she finished her stream, the daylight began to sharpen and crystallize, hardening into a stainless blue sky. The days were hot here. Already the sun crisped at her skin. Fern watched a bird pat atop the undergrowth, stabbing up insects into its beak. She stood, making a game out of moving so slowly the bird was unafraid. Her lanky limbs golden with summer, and her hair white with sun, as if it were long sheaves of harvest grass, whispering all the way down her back, almost to her waist. Fern smoothed it back as she gathered up the milking bag from its hook over the rust-black door of Spellsong. She scooped up the stool beside the wooden steps where she'd sat atop it the night before. And for every night, as long as she could remember, snapping beans, making up lies for her younger brothers. Humming to herself, she tugged the sap-green braid of her dress tighter, making the smooth, creamy linen bloom celebrate her lean, muscular body. Tolu woke and grinned over at her sleepily. You're a cool drink of water this morning. His low voice bolted through her hotly, and Fern jumped, her thoughts startling up into the sky. Spine tingling, she turned and saw him by degrees. The handsome, sleepy, golden-skinned man stretched out alongside the nightfire stones. The long, soft, woolly locks tumbling across his shoulders, that lazy, closed-mouthed smile, unrolling himself from the shadow of Lamados, as if he could dissolve in and out of visibility at will. She flushed. Tolu was beautiful, but he was also the carnivorous master of death, directing executions under hot-eyed desert crowds. His hands had been soaked in blood while that rich voice of his roared and prowled, reaching beneath one's very skin into nightmares and dreams. He could direct entire arenas into maddened frenzies, one single, screaming, unpredictable beast, and then, with a gesture, demand silence, and then a final frenzy even wilder than the first, all with a touch from his voice. 
But Tolu was also, at this moment, just a man, sleep-rumpled and, somehow, almost shy. He moved slowly, as if not to startle her, folding himself up around one bent knee. Beauty is a garden awake in the heart. A person can't be truly beautiful without beautiful thoughts in their head. That's life, girl, that's chapter one. You must be dreaming you some good dreams, I can tell that from here. Tolu lay back down, smiling at her. Fern blushed hotter. She knew he was flattering her, knew it made her feel good anyway, and this made her confused. You fell asleep outside again, she said thinly. Suddenly, Tolu seemed far away. He looked up at the sky as if she weren't there anymore. Tolu could go away like that, his soul instantly absent from his body. He could step half in, half out of himself. Where did you go, Tolu, she might say. And then he'd be right there with her again, his eyes focused on hers. I'm right here. That rumbling voice so close he made her skin tingle and her heart race. Not going anywhere, she would say next. Never. I'm close as your own heartbeat, girl. That was how Fern imagined it, anyway. Her mother warned her regularly about Tolu. Of course, this only served to make him all the more interesting. But fine. She drifted off back towards the lopes. If he was going to be like that, she didn't want to talk to him anyway, Tolu and his stories. Every time he spoke, he said something different. There was no telling what was truth and what was nonsense. And that time he sneezed so hard, he'd uncorked that giant fart, scaring all the animals. My brown salute, he'd called it, laughing at his own joke so hard, they all couldn't resist laughing, too, until they cried. Fern giggled to herself even now, remembering it. Well, don't let it go to your head, girl, Tolu said. He thought she was laughing at him for having slept outside in the dirt. Good gardens go bad that way. Who says I want to be good? And what I want is no concern of yours, Fern said. You don't want to be good. Those overlapping front teeth gave him a wry air. Why not? Fern sat to milk the lopes. Bad girls are free, she said. The animal sighed appreciatively, leaning into her and she leaned back, scratching its foreleg until the creature stretched its neck out with pleasure, its long horns glinting in the sunlight. So be free then, Tolu said. Do what you want, why not? Tolu spread his hands up to the sky. Be whatever you want. Think if we could do as many things with our consciousness as we can with milk. We could make cheese and milk from our thoughts. Butter, ricotta. Fern laughed. Once you've got cheese, though, it can't be milk again. I prefer butter anyway, Tolu said. The lope's milk stroked warmly into the bag, pressing softly against Fern. Although cheese lasts longer, I think, she said, feeling warm all over. She laughed again and liked the way she felt Tolu watching her while she laughed. What are we talking about, she said. Tolu smiled. Your beauty... Fern shot him a sly grin. Well, just so long as you don't salute me with any of your brown salutes, then. They cracked up. Good morning, Glories, Lelora said, descending down from Spellsong. 
She stretched happily as Fern's little brothers poured out behind her, laughing and shoving each other, tumbling around like catkins. Morning, Fern said. Ogodaya came down behind Lelora stiffly, blinking at the daylight as if it affronted him. Fern could remember when her father seemed young and strong, but ever since Tolu had become the caravan's preferred executioner, it was as if Ogodai became inflexible overnight, cranky, old. Tolu kicked off the blanket which had been draped across his legs and lay back in the dirt, staring grimly at Ogodai. There's only one reason you want me well, he said. Well, you can thank Lelora for the kindness, not me, Ogodai said, picking up the blanket with two fingers, as if Tolu had soiled it. Lelora smiled at him serenely. Ogodai kicked the fire ring back into place and busied himself picking up bits of leftover kindling. We're here to help you, Tolu. If you're lost, we're all lost. Ogo, take this and put it under the wagon. Tolu lay back, staring up at the sky. How are you holding up this morning, Tolu? Lelora said to him, quietly. Better than I deserve. The little boys jumped on Tolu, squealing, and the big man laughed. He glinted at her as he wrestled the boys off. Don't you worry, Lelora. Death doesn't want me. We've had the discussion. Let your uncle rest now, Ogodai said, shooing the boys off. Tolu needs his rest. Go on. Go on. Oh yeah, Tolu said, settling back down, stacking his legs one atop the other. What you know about me? That you're a pain in the eye, Ogodai said. Chapter 14. Pet Boy. Now, with camp receded behind him, Pet Boy felt differently about having brought Scrapes along. Alone together, deep in the underbrush, Pet Boy remembered that Scrapes made his scalp crawl. A few days earlier, when Scrapes went into the woods with Ian, only Scrapes returned. Pet Boy's mother had warned him about being alone with other soldiers. Trust no one, she said. That's the only way you'll return home safe to me, my boy. We are all of us brothers and sisters, but some of us far less than others. Now Pet Boy felt Scrapes watching him like a snake fixed on a mouse. Well then, if Scrapes was big and bad, Pet Boy could be badder. Quit falling back behind me, he said loudly. I've seen you wear three different faces for the last two people you talked to. I don't trust you a lick, Scrapes. You stay in front of me. Scrapes smiled around at him slowly. You can suck my bloody tits. You think I ain't watching you? I see you. You stay in front of me. That's Ian's bag you're carrying, not your own. I know what you did. Big words for a little boy. Where's Ian now, huh? Watch out, little boy. What's to stop me putting you away the same, if it's true? Yeah, will you now? Walls have ears, doors have eyes. I'd be more than missed. Go on and try. See what happens. The boy's voice is carried to Uma and her scent pricked up their mount's ears, but the two soldiers were too busy yelling to notice. She grabbed a rock, the biggest she could find, and scrabbled up a tree as the boys, still yelling, crashed towards her through the underbrush. The crying tree was sleek to climb, 
and its long beaded fronds seemed to sway whenever she breathed. But the long, thin branches concealed her. A green snake lay along one branch, staring down at her indifferently. She held herself still and tried not to breathe. When a crying tree was cut down, the roots of others near it would send it life until the broken one budded again. Whenever the crying trees were dug up, their roots were always found to be locked together tightly, like clasping hands. And when there was drought, their pale cries could be heard from rods away, warning other trees in the distance. A hard time is coming. Hard times are coming. Hold strong. Now the boys were so close, Uma could see the greasy tops of their dark heads. She threw the rock as hard as she could. Birds screamed up from the leaves as the rock slashed an arc through the trees and bounced down the hill. The boy soldiers shot after it. In the distance above the trees, Ulali was burning. The ashes of the ancient castle were like birds, rising across the smoke-roomed sky. Beneath her, from down the hill, came an unmistakably wet thump. Murder had shot through Petboy's arm the moment Scrapes dashed out in front of him. He hadn't needed to think about it at all. Now Scrapes was dead, one foot still in his stirrup, snagging along in the undergrowth with his stupid fat head catching on roots. Better you than me, Petboy thought. And surely, Godex guided his aim. After all, some were brothers less than others. Petboy dismounted, heading over to Scrape's slope. Easy, boy, easy. He eased the dead boy's foot out of the stirrup. The animal leapt forward as Scrape's weight fell away, but Petboy snatched the reins and tied them to a tree. The animal would free itself eventually, but by the time it came back to their camp, riderless, a day or two would have passed. Anything might have happened to Scrapes by then. Least of all, Pet Boy. He reached for the keep bag on the dead boy's belt. The belly lurched. Pet Boy shot back, his heart racing, and the lope went wild, bucking and thrashing around. But the movement was only from a foul wind escaping Scrapes' body. The ridiculous sound went on hiccuping through the trees, until finally the lope tore free. Godex, damn it all! He snatched up the stinking bag and glared into it, evaluating Scrape's collection of teeth. And not all of them were Wutar. I knew you were a killer, Pet Boy said, pleased to the dead boy. How Godex loved symmetry. Devouring, devoured. It had nothing to do with fairness. Fairness, that was society's construction. But now Pet Boy was free of all that nonsense, free as only darklings and innocence could be free. He was a thousand ways of being all at once, a man of horror. He looked up. Goddix, you're the only one I have to answer to, the only one who understands. Uma sat watching the strange little boy beneath her on the hill. He was smaller than she was. She thought she could kill him easily if she needed to. But better to remain silent for now. Who knew what other soldiers lurked nearby? She let herself drift and weave into the green world around her. Blood from a small wound itching down her wrist. The snake glided away, towards birdsong, thinking nothing. Nothing.
In the distance was the shouting of soldiers. Chapter 15 The Singing Sands Now it was night, and the desert was cold. It was afternoon when Uma fled the quarry, her heavy red cloak blending into the dunes, her shadow slender on the world as a scrap of blowing ash. Hard times are coming. Hold strong. Moonless, bitter wind. Uma clenched her hood around her face tightly and saw she was holding the vial of Inga's blood. Everything inside the vial, and inside her, of course, was the last of them. She stopped, remembering the way Inga's blood pulsed through her like lightning, the blood drunks yelling in the streets of her youth, the taste of her mother's blood as it cooled in her mouth, and Uma remembered the brilliant road within herself, her body flaring with strength and knowing. She opened the vial. The container was so warm from her skin it seemed alive, with an agenda all its own. Imagine you held a tiny bit of broken horn, and the darkness inside it was the heart blood of a murdered world. It was all the family she had left. Blood congealed on the outside, powdering her fingers, staining her skin. Inga's voice was still alive in her mind. Live for us, Uma. But it was death Uma smelled in the vial, cold and metallic. She darted her tongue out to lick it and almost blacked out from the pleasure of the taste. Metallic, marine, utter certainty, her Inga. Instantly, Uma felt swimmy and wanted more, so much more than what there was. Her mind was already reaching into the taste, into the wonderful, new dancing fullness to reality around her. She gasped up at the night sky, felt Inga quicken inside her, as if Inga herself were pulsing back to life, wing beating through Uma's veins and beyond flaring out to every corner of the world. There was no separation between what was Uma and what was air. Her sense of self encompassed the desert all around her. She was shifting sand, crouching lizard, distant rain. She was roots, bones, blood, air. And then she was somewhere else entirely. It seemed to be the courtyard, but Uma knew she was far from Ulali. Everything, the trees, the stones, the lopes wandering across the yard, seemed younger, more gleamingly awake somehow, and above and throughout it was a geometric weaving of green light. A pale green cathedral, the energetic bones of the mystery itself. Abruptly, the lights faded, and Uma was standing in the ordinary reality of the desert again. Taste of blood bright in her mouth. Her cloak wrapped around her tightly, like the leaves of a bud. And then the light returned. She strove between shamanic reality and ordinary reality. Darkness, light, darkness. Her heartbeat bore her back and forth between worlds, and each time, she rose higher into the green light, her face streaming with tears. 
Magic, Uma thought. Life is magic. The bright, endless weft of the mystery was above and below and around and within her always. It was energy itself. I knew you would like it, a woman's voice said warmly. Uma turned into waiting arms. Inga! Hello, little one. Her Aunt Inga's braids were pinned back. And just like always, a few gray wisps escaped, dancing like mist around her eyes. You're not dead, Uma said. No, she wouldn't say it, wouldn't finish it. Words were a spell that could never be undone. If she didn't say it aloud, reality was less true. Where are we? What is this place? Your blood gift is a bridge, Inga said warmly. You can use it to journey to find healing and guidance. For yourself? For others? For most, this place can only be glimpsed between incarnations. But what is this place? Inga smiled. You know that already, child. This is the mystery. But we don't have much time. Now follow me. Step where I step. Uma followed her across the warm cobblestones. The air was slick and full with salt from the sea, but it wasn't like ordinary walking. She had to think herself forward. I don't understand, Uma stumbled. Blood drinkers are monsters. That's what everyone always said. Drinking blood is wrong. You told me so yourself that I was to never do it. Inga shook her head. I sinned against you, Uma. I lied to you as my parents lied to me, and theirs lied to them, a lie to try to keep us safe. The clarity and strength we receive through blood is the great gift of the Wutar people, but strength and clarity frighten those who are not ready to bear it. This is why the Yang have destroyed us. How can you rule a people who experience divine revelation without any intermediary? How can you control them? How can you make them afraid? You can't, Uma said. You couldn't. It would be impossible. Exactly. And that is why the Yang despise us. Whenever we have shared our knowledge with their people, those people can no longer be manipulated. You are not a monster. None of us were. Your gift is nature too. As Inga moved through the green light, it became brighter, stronger, more straight and true. It poured directly, like green columns of fire, straight up into the sky. When we heal ourselves, we heal the world. And when you connect to others in the blood, your energy forms a bridge, Inga said. You connect seekers to the mystery so they can find their own way into alignment. Not everyone incarnates to learn, but the blood road can show them how it would feel if they did. The crumbling stucco around them was inset with small plants and animals. She bent towards one of the plants, only to have it flicker from sight the moment she looked too closely. It disappeared, leaving behind only curved masonry, ancient bricks pale with age. Perhaps it is not ever possible for any of us, while incarnated, to truly understand Inga said, 
thoughtfully, only to experience. We follow our gifts, and with enough experience, we may begin to grow. If that is our path, we can hope as much for the Yang people. Inga looked at Uma. We can hold the way for them, but they must choose whether or not to take the path. There is so much to teach you, child, so much more that I understand now. But you will find your own teachers. This is the way it must be. She took Uma's hand into her own with a gentle smile, sweet and sad. The green light weaving all around us. Can you see it? That is the mystery, Uma. It is the weft of all worlds. Our decisions, the energy of our intentions, this is what weaves the web. There are many outside forces, of course, which can play upon the pattern. But the magic of our own intent matters. Try weaving the light, Uma. Feel what the light wants to be. Help it flow. Uma raised her hands. Inga waited steadily. You're not a monster, my little one. You're a light weaver, just like your mother. Uma's mouth twisted with the painful memory. Uma had failed her mother. The soaring green lights unblinking above her. The mystery stared at her. It knew her, and so it knew her truth. She was a murderer, a monster. It was impossible to lie in this place, especially to herself. You're wrong, my aunt, Uma said quietly. I'm not what you think I am. I don't deserve for you to think so well of me. I wish I did, but no, Inga said firmly. You are strong. You have the gift. You have a role to play, and now you must take up your calling. Uma frowned. Hadn't Inga just said the Yang could choose whether or not to take the path? Why couldn't she choose? All she wanted was to die with the others, but no, she had to stay alive all alone and murder them all, every last Yang alive. And then, only then could she mourn. The courtyard around them came adrift somehow, as if they were at sea. An understanding came into Uma's mind suddenly, as perfectly formed as a skipping stone, heavy to hold, and she was grateful to know at least one thing for certain. Ulo, she said. We're in the underwater temple. Ulo. Inga smiled. Yes, in a way. It's always been meaningful to me. Let me show you. The brilliant green strands thickened into water and wave lights. Step where I step. The ocean temple was centuries older than the castle of Ulali. And although in ordinary reality, it was now drifting with the smoke and ash of sunken ships, in shamanic reality, Ulo lay still dreaming beneath the scarlet waves, dreaming the wave-licked visions that only the water temples of the gods may know. Uma followed Inga through the massive watery rooms, their cloaks streaming behind them, as they wove between kelp gardens and sightless statuary of gods and goddesses, their expressions full of love. She was walking through water, breathing effortlessly. Her heart flew. Then another stone thought came into her mind, as if it were put there by one of the statuary itself. You are not alone. Uma rejected it angrily, hurling the thought away. <laughs> 
The brilliant green light around them shuddered for an instant, and then, shifting itself slightly, wove into a new and different pattern around them. Inga gazed at Uma thoughtfully. Uma's throat tightened, for she'd felt herself surge with strength. And in the moment the mystery reordered itself, she'd felt her mother's presence beside her. Iko was here somewhere, watching her. Inga broke into her thoughts. Child, there is much to show you, but we have little time. You'll not see me again. Myself, as you have known it, is fading. It is my time to return. This is the way of all things. You will not be able to call on me again. But your memory of me will always be with you, as will my memory of you, of how much I will always love you. This will remain part of me, even as what is I returns into what is. Uma burned with all she could not say. Her mother. Where was her mother? But to ask the question was to make Inga's answer real. If Inga said Iko was gone forever, knowing what Uma longed to ask, Inga wrapped her arms around the girl tenderly. Ulali will always be with us. It is our hearts. And when you travel here, remember you are not alone. Spirits and allies dwell in the mystery. Even gods wander by. Oh, little one, I'm so sorry it hurts. Umba trembled, nodding. Inga moved back, clapping her hands. Here they come. Ah, here we are, my little loves. And what flew into her arms was a cloud of bell crickets and locusts, enrobing the old woman in a joyous alien light. These are my allies, Uma. They have helped me become strong. They helped me to learn. With them, I could suck out sickness. They caught the illness when I sucked it out and flew away with it to a place where the illness could no longer do harm. This was their gift to me. If they like you, perhaps they will help you to do the same. Or you may find some other gift, some other ally. But remember this. Any illness you remove from others must be handled with care. You have to bind that illness up. Take it someplace far away where it can hurt no one else. Do not just leave it on the ground for someone else to step into. Now, my little loves, go now from me and be with her. The robe of light flew to Uma. She felt them settle in close, tiny wing beats of elating warmth and strength. Inga smiled. If you care for them, perhaps they will stay. Remember, the power does not come from us. It comes from our allies. We are merely their channel. She closed her eyes, nodding as though she were tired. Uma rushed to her aunt, the robe of light brilliant around her. Don't go yet, please. Please stay with me. Just a while longer. Inga stroked her hair, smiling. Her eyes were still closed. The weight of her touch was airless. Let them teach you. Surrender to what they show you. She began to fade. Don't leave me. Not yet. Please. Can you hear it calling me? Inga kissed both Uma's cheeks. 
so beautiful. It doesn't hurt, my love. There is no pain. It was now or never. Inga, my mother, is she? But her aunt was gone. Uma was alone. She looked down at the empty vial and then dipped it gently into the sand and sat watching the grains darken with the last of Inga. Chapter 16 Tolu The Chiriklo executioners returned once more to the boneyard. Their arms were full of offerings, bags of exotic spices, teas and poultices, and best of all, a delicate old comb carved from bone. The handle was wide and ornamented with splinters of abalone shell. It felt wonderful to hold. Tolu had traded for it from the oldest Yang woman anyone in their caravan had ever seen. Her small, bright eyes were sheathed in wrinkles, as if she'd beheld a thousand seasons. She moved with profound grace, showing Tolu how the comb made the firelight dance when it was used besides a night fire. She combed out her hair slowly, right there in front of him. The shell caught the reflection of the flames and sent them echoing out into the darkness, as if each fleck of light was a memory from a different season in her long life, each as bright as snow. The beauty of her gestures, of her deeply composed face and long, water-silver hair, Tolu blushed. At the last moment, she almost changed her mind about selling it, but she was hungry, and he gladly paid her too much for it. Now he told all this to the silent boneyard as he offered the comb up to the invisible Wutar healer. For Tolu was caught up in the spell of the initiation now too, in spite of himself. He even imitated the old Yang woman's hesitance to place the comb down, as it was so beautiful. He made a great show of admiring the lights it made, even here in the dark. Tolu knew the healer was watching from the shadows. He felt her eyes on his skin felt her willing him to go on with his story, hungry for his next words. It belonged to her mother and to her mother's mother, five generations of women, maybe more. You're a healer, so perhaps you are different from me, but to me, owning such a thing of beauty, imbued as it is with generations of hope for my enemy, well, it means something to possess it. Not a victory quite, but a pleasure. Tolu bowed. May our humble tokens bring you pleasure, great lady. He placed the comb beside the spices and tea on the offering cloth, and then once again the men backed out on their knees into the alley. It was part of the Wutar's ritual, Monak had explained, making their offerings over a period of days. It was so the Wutar could send her spirits to follow the men back to their camp and ascertain the truth of who they were, the veracity of their need, and so on. If that was true, Okudai wondered that any Wutar had ever been successfully captured before in history, but they did as they were asked. And already, Toulouse seemed different, more sincere, as if he wanted to prove himself to the spirit world. Can you feel it too, he said, the moment they were back out in safety of the alley, he glanced down. She's watching me right now. I can feel her. Do you? Fear traced up Ogodai's back 
cold as midnight. Perhaps, he said, forcing himself to walk slowly, even as the fear spread through him, watching us. With every step he took, he thought he would feel the vampire lunge into his back, feel her fangs sear into his neck, and for once, the sultry hush of the darkness outside Palmstone's Medina was not a relief. But Tolu did not consort with any tavern dancers. He did not drink overmuch, or even glance at the infamously strong milk the Chiriclo always kept available for guests, the better to sell them spices. And he told no carnivalry, which was the problem. Royal commissions for executions lined their pockets. But Tolu's carnivalry afterwards was what really brought in the trade. Tolu was a born mesmerist. It was why Ogodai adopted him. When the boy was just a starveling, begging for gruel in a dirty alley, even then the boy could spin up a crowd out of thin air. But now the show had died from Tolu's lips. It happened to executioners sometimes, Ogodai knew. The murder devoured them. It turned their hearts first to stone, then to dust. In the end, they hardly spoke at all much less drew in crowds after killing was done. When a teller of tales no longer found pleasure in the world around him, no love in his heart or joy in his blood, his carnivalry abandons him and drifts away in search of other instruments. So too, Ogodai felt his own good luck drifting from center. Chapter 17 Uma As night faded into dawn, Uma shaped her course between two dunes, where she dumped out her bag and evaluated the four sticks packed inside it for her. Each was light and smooth, curved at the ends to serve as either spade or weapon. Using the lightest stick, she dug a shallow sleeping pit in the sand and then drove each stick into a separate corner of the pit. She tied her cloak to the four sticks. The only other item in the bag was a smaller keep bag, filled with dried moss and water roots. She tied it to her waist to make sure she didn't lose it, and then untied the knots of her tawny-colored carrying bag itself, tying it to the posts above her red cloak to reflect away the heat of the sun. She slept until the heat of midday woke her, a brilliant white world swimming in the strip of light between cloak and sand. Ash marked the skyline of the distant coast, and the singing sands around her were pale as salt. She was farther from home than she'd ever been. Uma held the vial up to the light, turning it between her fingers. The clotted pink sand inside it looked as if it were only dirt. She flopped her arm over her eyes, trying to go back to sleep, but now she was angry. She lay resting until dusk, when it was safe for her to travel again. And as she tore down camp, Uma was talking to herself in fits and starts, the way Inga used to. As the cool of evening flooded over the desert like dark waters, rage flooded into Uma, river cold, and the hateful memory, bright as salt, that she could not shake free. Her mother, Aiko, dying in bed. You must let me go, my Uma. It is my time. 
droplets of her blood on the floor all around them, like gloss black moths. Uma would hate moths forever. She would not turn her head, but she tried not to see. She held her mother's hands tightly, though they felt cool and light as leaves. Mama, try to stay. Stay here with me. I need you. You will always be my baby, but now you must be strong. Aiko tried to shoo Uma gently away, to pretend a rakishness she no longer felt. She gave up and slumped back, her proud mouth pale as candle wax. I'm tired. I'm ready to die, sweet child. You must honor this, Aiko said weakly. Let me die. Stay, Mama. Stay here with me. Now Uma tore at her chest, screaming into the emptiness like a child gone mad. Not that it mattered. There was no one to see. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care if anyone hears me, if they find me. I don't know where I'm going. I didn't ask for this. I never wanted to leave. I just want to die. The sands listened, implacably pale, quiet and still, like Aiko's eyes. As Uma watched, the deepening sky before her became the color of her mother's own cool hands. And that fingertip of moon, it was the curve of Aiko's fingers, gently waving goodbye. Uma drew on her cloak slowly and walked on. Chapter 18 Tulu. On the third night, Tulu and Ogodai came bearing their finest gift, an ancient Wutar healer's robe, almost liquid, the way it draped and danced at the lightest touch. It was red as a tea-wetted tongue, with full kimono sleeves and a sash-like snake scales. The soldier they'd bought it off would only smile darkly when Tulu asked him how he'd come across such a wondrous garment. Then, shouldering up the vast amount of milk he'd bought, the soldier went scrabbling off atop his massive lizard, disappearing back into palmstone. The Wutar robe began to whisper to Tulu in his hands even then, as it did now. Proximity to the holy relic made him feel as though he had one foot in someone else's world, one with a different gravity, different rules, and no right to be there without a guide, he could not wait to be rid of it. Tulu paused outside the hanging carpets. I'm frightened tonight, brother. Ogodai touched his shoulder gently. I'm sure that's natural. When Tulu did not move, Ogodai lifted the carpets for them, and as they went beneath it, the holy robe in Tulu's hands seemed to sing out to the heavy carpets, to the clicking shell ropes in the cradling dark. In the center of the courtyard, a long, narrow red kneeling cushion was laid out in welcome for them. Tulu looked at Ogodai, wide-eyed. Ogodai nodded, and they shuffled down on their knees, knee-walking up to the red cushion slowly, their heads bowed and hands held out before them. The kneeling pad came as an almost unbelievable relief. Their knees were bruised from night after night of supplications. 
Tulu brought out the parcel of robe from within his own cloak and held it out to the dark with reverence. Great lady, I come in peace to ask you for healing, and tonight we present this to you. Surely you are its most rightful owner. May it bring you happiness. Tulu put his forehead and hands to the earth. He heard the bell locusts ring louder as he continued to rise and fall, bowing and then rising up again on his knees, clasping his hands up to the sky, just as the torch keep had shown him to do. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe and free, he said. Faint as leaves came the gentle scrape of quiet steps coming towards them across the dusty courtyard. Tulu lifted his head up as high as he dared, but the clearing was empty. Suddenly a woman spoke directly into his ear. What is your name? Her voice was low, like water rushing over river stones, murmuring, powerful. Tulu jumped, faltering on his knees. I am called a Tulu, great lady. He tried too late to compose himself. She was not dressed as a Wutar, of course. That would be too dangerous, even for a vampire. But she was clearly other. Her skin was bluer than the night itself, and she'd shaved her head bald as an ancient Wutar from a mural. Her naked scalp was oiled and gleaming in the starlight, so that as she stood there before them in her long, yang black cloak, the healer seemed a glittering matchhead. Eyes like burning yellow suns, beautifully decorated with mint ash, if her desired effect was to frighten pilgrims into shocked, silent and utter fealty, the beautiful young woman, for that she was, had won. Tulu could smell the fang oil he'd given her on her skin. The voluptuous resin of it was unmistakable. It was like a temple incense smoking atop on rain-wet stones like a cloud forest temple, gray amidst the green. Our gift wears proud on you, he said. The heat of her body lit the scent into a hot, beckoning haze. The vampire glanced pointedly at their staffs on the ground beside them. I see my guests are executioners. That is why you've come. Her fangs flashed as she spoke. Fangs. Long as a catling's. And she spoke boldly, not at all trying to hide them. The death in her beautiful mouth, the realization of this thudded hotly in Tulu's ears, the ultra warmth of her she'd recently fed. In his mind's eye, now Tulu saw soft bodies like crumpled sacks along the dark wall all around them. But she'd asked him a question, and he hadn't answered. Quickly, Tulu shook his head. No, no. She smiled. No. You've come to lay your eyes upon the last vampire, then. Perhaps you will be my next victims, but not my last. I've come to you because you are a great shaman, Tulu said. She scoffed. If anyone tells you they are a shaman, you should run. The introduction can only be by energy alone. But the herbalist husband, Tulu said quickly, he was too ill to even stand. Now he laughs. He goes to market. Ogadai raised himself in protest. Great lady, I assure you, my brother is... But her full moon stare stopped him cold. 
and he fell silent. Your brother must ask for himself, the vampire said, icily. Ogurai lowered back down to the ground, trying not to betray his climbing terror. Sweat ran down his spine. Could she smell his fear, he wondered, as wild animals did? Did a man's fear wet a vampire's terrible, wrong interest, much as fear roused any creature of darkness? Tulu bowed. Please, I have need. She was still. Tulu bowed lower still, resting his brow on the sand. He swallowed and tried again. Please, help me. The wind rose around them, lifting the vampire's cloak. The stones gnawed at Tulu's forehead. But if she was silent, he would be too. For you, I charge extra, she said, finally. Tulu tried to smile. Ah, because I am so strong. Because you can pay. Ogurai laughed. He can indeed pay. Tulu blinked at him. Go on, Ogurai said. She smells your money. You shouldn't have brought so much. The vampire snorted as Tulu reached into his jacket and tugged his keep bag free. He offered it to her with both his hands. Well... Great lady, make my healing extra strong then, please. The vampire counted out his coins and gracefully returned them into the soft leather bag. It disappeared into her cloak. She need my bag too, Tulu said. Have mercy, woman. She only smiled and turned to Ogadai. You will stay. Sometimes I do not remember things. You will help him remember what he needs to know. I liked that bag, Tulu said. I like it too. That is why, now, it is mine. She drifted back. You will follow me. Chapter 19, Bort. Soldiers seethed through the ruins of Ulali. Towers lay smashed about like rows of crushed skulls. There was nothing left of the tortured orchards but their oil wheels. Nothing left of the mosaics but blowing ash. And in the house of the reaping sons, only a hole remained in the library, gaping where tall and ornate bookshelves once divided the genteel room. As Bort's captain watched, the young soldier eased himself down into the hole, quickly covering his mouth with his tunic sleeve as ash billowed up around him. Daylight streamed in through the caved-in easements and stone windows, illuminating the dust as it lifted and swirled. Bort sank softly into the ash, still warm, compacting beneath his feet. He crouched, squinting into the swirling dark. And sure enough, there it was in the distance, light. Well, boy, it's a tunnel, sir. Chapter 20, Tulu. The pathway hidden behind the trees at the back of the courtyard was so narrow, the executioners turned sideways to follow the vampire. It tilted down, as if they were descending into an animal's burrow. Tulu scraped his palms raw, so many times did he reach out against the narrow walls for balance in the blackness. Now and again, 
He felt the vampire's cloak wisp against his ankles, but the girl herself was always just out of reach, as if her cloak were hollow as the dark itself. I'm still awake, aren't I? Tolu said. The vampire laughed. Yes, we must go where we will not be interrupted. No one can see us now. We're beneath the catacombs. Tolu sweated with the effort of keeping up with her. Beneath the catacombs, he said. Yes. Would you like a light? There was a scraping sound, then a hot flare of light. The vampire grinned at him from above her small hand torch, widening her eyes above the light playfully. You had that with you all this time, Tolu tried to laugh, and no idea vampires had such a sense of humor. No, you wouldn't, would you, she said. The echo of their footsteps shivered out in strange directions. What sounded to be caverns flared out on either side of them like hellish nostrils, and Tolu shuddered, knowing well what rotted in the catacombs beneath the boneyard. But at the foot of the passage she led them down was only a small carved ledge, and then another series of even more extraordinarily narrow stairs. At the bottom, off yet another long and narrow hall, was a final, womb-like room. It was perfectly round, with unlit torches and sconces set into its walls. They stood in the doorway as the vampire swept through it, lighting the sconces with her own torch until the space rushed and swayed with oily light. In the center was a carpet, pillows, old writing scrawled across the walls, distorted by their shadows as they moved into the room. The monks were kind to my people, she said, seeing the Chiriclo men notice the faded writing. Hard to imagine now, isn't it? But after the destruction of Andahar, they let some of the Wutar citizens of Palmstone take refuge here. My ancestors wrote poetry from the smudge of their torches. What happened to them? Ogadai said. They died. You, she said to Tolu, lie here. She squatted, adjusting the blanket up around his shoulders. If you see anything that scares you, ask it if it is your teacher. If it is not your teacher, it will go. Understand? Tolu stared at her. She made him repeat what she'd said until she was satisfied. Next, she went to Ogodai and gave him a drum made from a tanned hide stretched around the end of a long, hollow cylinder of wood. All this while the vampire moved with a tender, almost hypnotic intimacy, as if the Chiriclo were animals to be trained. Even as Ogodai noticed this and resented it, he felt himself grow calm against his will. He accepted the drum without a blink. Hold it like this, the vampire said gesturing for him to sling the drum under one arm and rest the end on the stone floor. He did, and felt the shape conform against him, almost comfortingly. He looked quickly over at Tolu, who watched with a faint smile. Suddenly she was directly in front of Ogadai. You're perfectly safe. Now, like this. She showed him the slow, steady rhythm she wanted, like a heartbeat. Okay, now you... After Ogodai began to drum, hesitantly at first and then with conviction, she took her place behind Tolu. The candles flared as she bid Tolu lie down 
place his head in her lap. Keep drumming. Talu closed his eyes. The vampire curved over him, brushing his locks gently out of the way, resting them back across her thighs, and Toulouse sank into a boneless, velvet ease. She leaned closer, just above his neck. He heard her catch her breath with pleasure, and suddenly fear slivered through Toulouse like snowfall. He struggled, but she held him caught in her palms like a fish. She bit his neck, quick and delicate, and then hovered, her golden eyes rolling back, white as salt, and Toulouse became still. His own eyes began to flutter, and the vampire stood on a hill in Toulouse's mind. It was night, fireflies, a river bend. There was a Chiriclo caravan circled around their night fire, and the wildflower people were singing, dancing, whispering in the dark. But Tolu was alone inside his family caravan, shivering violently. But his terrors belonged to a man, not a child. The vampire saw them all, the criminals and prisoners of war, as Tolu dragged them out before screaming audiences. The executions, thieves lit on fire repeatedly until they dripped with their own grease. Tolu ripping out chunks of their flesh feeding it to chained catlings, how he'd made prisoners reenact their own capture, forcing them to play both sides, murdering loved ones and friends, until a pool of blood and stinking viscera climbed the ankles of the sole survivor. And the way Toulouse stood there, magnanimous all throughout, indicating that the thief had now earned his freedom and was free to go, he waved his hand. The Yang audience screamed wildly, demanding the man's blood. Tolu only bowed as the thief shattered past him. He was a skinny, middle-aged islander who'd been inland to visit his daughter. He'd wanted to bring her a gift, one he could not afford, and so he'd stolen it. Just as the man reached the gate of the arena, his hand outstretched, could it be true that he might have a second chance? Tolu spun and lassoed him by the waist, dragged him back, writhing into the heart of the arena and gave invitation to the howling audience and the people erupted down over the walls of the arena and tore the father into limp flags of skin, into coins of wet bone they whipped overhead and snatched from each other while Tolu disappeared. Well paid and his caravan rich and well fed from all the trade before the execution. It would take days for the blood to leave his fingernails. And Tolu knew that if he ever stopped, his caravan would suffer the same tortures that only his predations protected them from in the Yang's land of wealth and hate, Tensingland. Yet, in their arena, Tolu had a face. Ogodai's drum beat on, the vampire moved past these thoughts in Tolu, working deeper still. Riding the sound of Ogodai's drum, her spirit traveled a brilliant white river until she came to a bend where the gatekeeper of dreams and death waited in the reeds. In Tolu's mind, the gatekeeper appeared as an ancient Chiriclo grandmother. Shawled and toothless, 
So small, she hardly came up to the girl's waist as they stood in the moonlit reeds, their cloaks floating around them. Grandmother's eyes were pools of cold light, dog moons. Grandmother, I seek your permission to speak with his allies, the vampire girl said. Your intention, vampire. If his allies are sick, I will heal them. If they are lost, I will find them and lead them home to his heart. The little boy, for that was how the grandmother understood Tolu, is lost. He needs them to find his way home. And then, the rest is up to him, the vampire said. Grandmother sucked her gums, studying her carefully. Grief knows your name, girl, the old woman said. The young woman held her gaze. And my name is Nature, too. Grandmother nodded. You may pass. She watched the girl walk ashore, cross the whispering grasses into a cave. And within the cave was a tunnel, ringed on all sides with spiders and snakes that leapt out, but the girl waved them away catching the ones which would not flee in her spirit bag, which she always cleansed in the mystery after her every journey. At the bottom of the cave in his mind, she found the adult Tolu lay bound, his lips and eyes sewn shut. His spirit allies had not abandoned him. In fact, they lay curled against him protectively, a rabbit spirit who was his childhood's friend, and a ghost from a tribe so ancient not even the vampire knew its name. And there was a third creature. She couldn't see, except for the creature's large eyes glowering at her from the darkness. She spoke to them. This man thinks you have abandoned him. Is it true? The ghost and the rabbit looked at her. It is he who has forgotten us. His heart is dead. And yet he lives, the vampire said. From habit only, said the rabbit. The girl blessed them all, making them strong and filled with light. Whatever Tolu has done or will do, love him. Remind him who he is, what he is. You are his best selves. The remembering is his to do. Come now to live at the forefront of his mind and bring him your gifts. In the silence of the catacombs, Ogodai went on beating the drums. He watched as the vampire crouched over Tolu, her eyes still closed, her hands moving in the air above his heart. In Tolu's mind, the vampire stood and called to the third creature, still shrouded in darkness. Are you here to teach this man? To heal him? The thing looked at her, gloating, its eyes like wet white stones. To heal him. You must heal me, it said, in a dry, cold voice, for I am he, and he is me. It fainted towards her, and she saw it was the skeleton of an enormous winged catling. The fanged skull leered. If you have, you must give. The vampire stiffened. Do not speak to me with her tongue. You are not my teacher. She felt its energy trying to consume her own to bind her as it had bound and drained Tolu. The gloating skull grinned. But we know each other well, don't we? You and I. 
She bawled light up between her palms and directed it at the creature, holding it at bay while she backed out of the cave. But the thing rushed towards her, bone wings outstretched. We know each other very well, child of Ula Lee. The vampire released the light from her hands and shot it at Tulu's monster, a hot, blinding surge. And in the same moment, she fled out of the cave and up the river, all the way up back into her own body. She signaled Ogodai to stop drumming. In silence, she leaned over Tulu and cupped her hands around her mouth, blew the energy of what she'd learned into the cave of his soul. My brother in darkness. Her thoughts raced, though she tried not to let him know. But the knowledge was part of her heartbeat now, wild and frightened, and Grandmother Death had known all too well what she would find inside him. My brother in darkness. Ogodai watched the vampire as she rose, rapidly sealing the sacred space, sweeping her hands closed to all corners of the room. Chapter 21 Bort She's just a little thing, Bort said, rising up from the underbrush. Only the one. Her sign is hardly anything at all except right here. See? Looks like she barely escaped. The smoke put her down a good while. Then she was up and on. Clever enough. We'll catch her and we'll put on a play, Pet Boy said. A strange little smile slid around on his face like a wet white worm. The shining star of our play, sure, sure, Aubrey, the third soldier said. I bet she'll sing for us. Everyone does if you do them right. Goddix loves a good blooding. Used to be we caged him up, made him watch their spawn die in the arena. Brings blessings from Goddix, that does. I know the stories, you know the stories. So why didn't we do them that way this time? That's what I'm asking. Now they're all gone. Unless the king saves some more up somewhere. That isn't mine to say or yours either, Bort said under his breath. Captain can't see you out here. What, you think she can? You're trying to prove what to her? Pet Boy pushed close to Bort's face. Maybe you just think you're better than me. Maybe you think you're better than both Aubrey and me, huh? Well, is that right? He picked his teeth, staring at Bort. Too good to answer me, he is. He's got that fine tunic and all. Bort began to sweat, but knew better than to flinch. He felt the other two evaluating his tunic silently, was aware how far they were from all the others now. Now that Ulali was fallen and her little spoils divided amongst their betters, the lower-ranking soldiers were left to fill their hands with whatever they could. Bort tried to remember Pet Boy when they'd first met. Pet Boy was river clean then, smiling and young, it was as if this wetly leering boy who stood before Bort now, all bowed up and ready to lash out at the merest provocation, had eaten up the child he'd been from the insides out. The undergrowth crackled under their feet. The leaves were sweet with rot and full of snakes. I'm not trying to stir you, Bort said, sounding bored. I was just saying. The vampire must have gone that way, that's all. Auber looked carefully from one boy to the other. That's where I'd head, sure, if my world was burning, dead off in the full other direction. Bort almost relaxed. Yeah, I guess so. Pet Boy's narrow, hatchet-like face assented, swinging off towards the trees. 
Right, girly? You're sad out here, all alone, your people all gone, and you've nowhere for a home. Aubrey grinned. She's the star of our execution play. She just don't know it yet. We'll scrape the skin right off her bones. She just don't know it yet. Right, go that way, Bort said, and was glad to walk behind them. Somehow, he knew not all of them would return the way they came. As the crying trees thinned into scrub and then faded into sand, Bort's heart sank. He'd hoped to track the Wutar girl up into a tree or something, but her sign was clear. He faltered to a stop at the edge of the desert where the quarry ended, staring out into the blinding expanse of sand. The smaller boys, not paying attention, trudged right into him. What is it, pet boy said, smacking into Bort far harder than necessary. She went that way, Bort said. Petboy's shoulders sagged. Well, she's already dead then. So we find her body and make sure, Bort said. Petboy sneered. You can't track someone in sand. Tensing's army had just spent the better part of a cycle skirting the great singing sands, and the boys knew the scrub desert outside the massive dunes was treacherous enough. Pounding heat, wild catlings, and blood-sucking locusts. It's death's ocean. Nothing goes in, nothing comes out, Pet Boy said. She went in, though, Auber said, helpfully. Pet Boy glared at him. I can track anything with hair, Bort said proudly. Wutar have hair, don't they? Auber said. Yes, you Micmac. So, it's settled then, Auber said, and they plunged on. Chapter 22 Tulu. Tulu lurched up, his eyes rolling. The shadows of the torchlights along the wall in the tiny room beneath the catacombs reeled and swayed all around them. He retched to one side. The vampire knelt beside him. The only one not trapped by the web is the one spinning it, Tulu. I feel strange, as if you are with me still and quieted somehow. He looked at her quizzically. Yes, we'll always be connected now. You'll know where I am, and I'll know where you are. You'll get used to it. She straightened. May you be beloved of gods, she said coolly, blessing him with a wave of her hands. May your spirits keep you safe. Remember who you are, Tulu of the Chiriclo. Hearing this, Tulu tried to sit again, to resume himself. The fragrance suits you, he said, weakly. Be still, rest, she said sharply, and then softened. It reminds me of home, the smell of my castle's stones when they were warm in the sun. You need to lie down again, rest now. Tulu wiped his face, breathing hard. He lay back down. Chapter 23 Uma Every night as Uma crossed the sands, Inga's singflies and bell locusts drifted around her, and every day she felt them protecting and healing her as she slept. She awoke rested and strong, though she knew she would need to find water soon. But as the third afternoon began to cool towards evening, 
Uma felt a new strangeness. One of the insect allies was pouring, no other word for it, a milky calm all through her, and light medicine flooded in. With her eyes still closed, Uma reached out gently, wanting to know the creature who would share such a gift with her. She opened her eyes, holding the being in her hand, expecting to see one of Inga's magical singflies. Instead, she saw a writhing, furious little winged form with a small, ugly mouth, twisted up in terrifying rage. It zipped out of her hand, profoundly disrespectful. Uma panicked, bolting upright and disassembling her tent. I'm sorry, I just wanted to understand more about what you were doing. I didn't mean to. No more for you. It buzzed with rage, the little singfly that was not a singfly. Uma knocked aside the fabrics and poles, bowing her head. Thank you for your gifts. I apologize for interrupting you. The creature rose into the air, vibrating angrily. Then it snapped in close to Uma's face and peered at her, eyeball to eyeball. Uma knew better than to show it any fear. She said the first thing that came into her mind. Tell me about your life. Always here. I am always here, the being said. An impression of empty, brilliant white space came into Uma's mind. Did you ever want to incarnate as a person? Like me, she said. The creature still hovered directly in front of her left eye. Like a scalding pinprick of angry light, it scoffed. Did you ever want to incarnate as an insect? Uma laughed. But you aren't an insect, are you? No, the creature preened. I am light. You're kind to share your light with me. It is what we do. It is the way of things for those who journey. The creature inclined its head towards Uma grandly. I am pleased you are happy. I'm honored to please you. Then it was gone. Almost smiling, Uma folded up her tent. It was near enough to dusk anyway. And that was when she saw them, the three cattails of churning sand on the horizon. She searched up a stone, found one which was heavy and hard to hold, almost the size of her thigh, and climbed to the far side of the dune with it in her hands. She crouched in the shadow, one leg angled back beneath her and ready to spring. Bort came first. He rounded the dune in the middle of a sentence, and Uma dropped on him, smashing his skull in with the rock. His legs straightened out rigid as tent poles as he fell, and Uma sank her fangs into his hot neck. She ripped his artery open and drank, her face and neck fountained with his blood. Time became like syrup, and the green lights of the mystery hummed out all around them, visible to her again, and stronger than before. The other two soldiers were still coming towards her, in slow motion now. Uma shot Inga's locusts at them, blinding the boys, swarming their mouths full of legs and wings as she went on draining Bort's strength. Feeling his life surge into hers, as his legs slow kicked in the soft white sand, she drank and drank. Bort's memories of his sisters, and the warm rush bed they shared, war games, and Bort's mind as it went on screaming, this was not like the games it was not. And the mystery rose up to meet him, tender and merciful, even as Bort's hands went on flailing, 
uselessly. He was lifting up out from his body, crossing over, almost smiling. Uma executed Auber and then seized Pet Boy in her hands. He was shrill, a trapped bird, screaming, I'll die before I feed you. Uma seized his shoulders with such a fierce grip that she furrowed deep tracks into his bones, smiled as he writhed with the pain. That, she said, tongue dancing across her fangs, is not true. The dead lay drained in a line towards Ulali. Tendrils of ash still snaking across the sky as rust dried across the sands and Uma turned. Was the edge of the setting sun, blood red, becoming night. Chapter 24 Ogadai. Ogadai shifted uneasily, warming his hands. It is done. The vampire was preparing to leave, gathering up her things. It's only begun. Ogadai smoothly crossed to the door, barring her way. She paused dangerously, and then floated towards him, her lovely, violent mouth curving into his shadow. I will pass, Chiriclo. When Tulu is well, you will find your own way back to the surface. Follow the light. He'll be better by tomorrow. But there is an opportunity here for all of us, don't you see? Ogadai said. Come with us. Come with my caravan and live on the road. Perform your healings for those who seek and we'll protect you. You'll be safe and we'll all get rich. Why not? I am my own protection, she said. Tulu sat behind them, rubbing his head between his hands. The vampire glanced over at him, and then Ogadai nodded gently, moving to one side with a bow so she could pass out into the hallway. He stepped out with her. The air was cool and mineral, her staring yellow eyes dizzying. That's your problem exactly, Ogadai said. Your strength is your downfall. How much would your fangs fetch at market, hmm? Long as they are, you know I'm right. You're rare. You're worth a great deal. Dead. The Yang would love to turn you into a bauble for some princess. But if you travel with us, she sneered, I'll hear no more of this. Good night, please. Yes, of course. Your people have been slaughtered like dogs for centuries. Who would possibly judge you for preferring to live like one? Slinking around in the shadows, never showing your face to the sun. Not I. The vampire turned back her full moon stare on him full force. Ogadai studied his nails. He was holding on to one elbow to steady his hand, and this he hoped she did not see. I've seen them, you know, the little baubles they make from the bodies of your people, fangs a millennia old, strung about the necks of spoiled little yang children who lose them in the mud. I imagine your teeth are priceless, long as they are. They'd have you set into a pendant. Ogadai spread his hands apart, indicating the size it would be. Death's doorway. I can see it now. A big dinner party. The highest bidder. The vampire's hand went to a dagger. She stalked in so close, he felt her breath on his face. 
I see you have carnivory after all, Ogodai of the Chiraclow. I understand you want revenge, vampire. I want to help you. On your own, I understand what you can do. A little bite here, a drink there. Perhaps you could heal a few hundred souls with your gift. But that is paltry. A few healings make no difference while the yangs still cover the earth. And what of your own intentions? You who use your own brother like a beast, I've seen that much. Ogodai shrugged. Tolu is what he is. It's no sin to be a carnivaler. And he's not my brother, not by blood. I see. So what are your own intentions? He straightened. I'm putting the world to rights. She snorted. Ah, yes, no less, of course. Hand still on her dagger. We Chiriklo live like fleas, running to hide the moment any yang scratches their ass. A thousand years of this, walking the trade route, selling our souls for coin. Then we turn back around and do it all again in the other direction. A song and dance here, trinkets there, a carnivalry. You look at me as if I don't know what I am. I know what I am, vampire. For my family, I do this. I will always do anything for my family. But if my people still had our home, our own land, we could feed ourselves just like anyone. No need to beg, steal, trade, carnival. I'm listening. This time, after we complete the route, we will turn back for the homeland. I'm passing on the word as we go. Ten thousand of us, Chiriclo, will all turn back towards the coast as one. We'll meet in the great shadow of the dunes, and then we will take our homeland back. There can be no power without land. We know this. You know this. My people are ashamed to admit this, but still, we know. I thought Chiriclo loved the road. Your caravans... I love mine own caravan, I do. I love it dearly. You're cold to mock it, you who know our homeland well. Before Ulali belonged to your village... Village? Before Evening's kingdom belonged to your great-grandmothers and their mothers before them, it was Chiriklo land. And it will be again. Mark me. Ogodai stepped in close enough now to feel the heat of the vampire's body. For there are few of you left now he said quietly. Her lips drew back. I am still here. And do you ever want to be there again? She stared at him. I'm offering you safety, a chance. Ogodai stepped back, lifting his hand so she could see he meant her no harm. I'm not for sale, she said. I am never for sale. No, he said, never. You will make this clear to all the yang you trade with, and to your family. I know the stories about what some Chiriclo have done to my people, kept them trapped against their will. Those are only stories, I assure you. Let the Yang tell their stories. We will live in truth. Ogunai spread his hands apart, his eyes wide. You are a respected healer. You will live proud with us. Anyone who comes to seek your healing will visit you in safety and security. You'll have your own wagon. Your animals will be safe. You can rest. 
Become rich if you like. Why is it you assume people are happier if they have more money? You have money. Your brother has money. But you came to me in need of something money cannot buy. Does my poverty embarrass you, Ogadai? He bowed. With your power, you should be dressed in red. You misunderstand me, she said. I know. She eased her hand on her blade slightly, watching him. Some say a stranger is our best teacher, Ogodai said. That the longer we know a man, the less we can trust him. For then we are no longer seeing things as they are, but only as we wish they would be. Having you beside us and your clear vision, it would honor my family to keep you safe, to keep you alive, vampire. She leaned slightly forward to check on Tolu again, saw that he was sprawled out peacefully asleep in the center of the floor. She crossed her arms, thinking, You Chiriklo are strange about money. You and the Yang think it solves everything. I will try to understand, Ogodai paused. Yet it must hurt you to hide behind Yang rags, after everything their people have done to yours, to have anything of theirs touch your skin. She sighed. I've heard there is a Wutar three villages from here, being kept by Chiriklo as a pleasure slave for Yang dogs. She looked down. I'm sure she is the last of her own tribe, as I am the last of mine. I'd like to talk to her. I'm sure they have her in traditional garments to increase her exoticism and chains. If you free her and every other Wutar we encounter, no matter the cost of time and effort to you, if you bring her to me, I will consider your deal. And what if I take her for our own instead of you? We only need one Wutar healer. She moved so quickly he did not see it. All at once, Ogodai was pinned to the wall, and the vampire's fangs were hot against his neck. He froze, not daring to move. She hissed. That is the last time you insult me and live. There are no others like me. This you know. Ogodai tried to smile. It was a joke. A poor joke. She let him go and he raised his hands again in mock surrender. You know what I am, she said. I do. She kicked him, and he stumbled back, his dry palms rasping on the damp, cool wall. Do not waste my time, she said. My people have lived along the Cape since the beginning. She watched him clench with rage. After a beat, Ogodai smoothed himself, smiled again. No traitor could allow himself the luxury of appearing angry for long. Then, perhaps we are a family, he said. I doubt it. But we have an understanding. If you free my kinswoman, yes, she said. Ogodai nodded. Consider it done. What do they call you, healer? The vampire brushed her cloak back from one shoulder. She studied him, one hand still on her knife. I am Uma, the last of Ulali. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please subscribe and leave a review. I love doing this, but I need your help. Your reviews will help get Evening's Kingdom published. Every single review means so much to me because it means the world to know you're out there listening. And two, each one is evidence to the gatekeepers that you love this story and want more. If you're a creator or an entrepreneur yourself, you know how much reviews help, and so I thank you. To leave a review, please subscribe via Apple Music. Scroll down and click five stars. <laughs> Any words you'd like to leave as well would really help. If you're listening via Spotify or another platform and don't use Apple because you don't have an iPhone, well, borrow a friend's phone <laughs> and leave a review that way. And thank you. I have much more ahead for you regardless. I've recorded all of book one for you here, and book two is coming out soon. And if you'd enjoy some extra free content as well, please visit me at eveningskingdom.com and subscribe to my free email list. Not only will you receive an automated note when each new episode is out, you'll also receive free, unlimited access to my other audio stories and guided meditations for my email subscribers only. So that in the great grand someday, should this epic quest ever become a real book for you to hold in your hands and enjoy, I can email you and let you know. This is Polishment. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.